You know, moonlight kind of creeps in through the temple curtains yet again, and, and King David continues to pace back and forth, back and forth. It's, it's another sleepless night. He's still in the same ash and sackcloth that he's been in for weeks because he's in this state of mourning. And down the hall, he can hear the, the efforts, the tireless work that his, his servants are trying to put in to, to heal this child who has become ill, but nothing seems to work. Not even the child's mother, Bashaba, can, can come alongside to bring any type of compassion or comfort, let alone not to mention the immense wreck that she finds herself in because it's been quite a year for her at this point. Not to mention that, that the past year she, she had to give birth to a child, but on top of that, the result of that child being one who was going to die. Not a child that she wanted to have, but because she was sexually assaulted. And then that same man killed off her husband and then took her for his wife. But needless to say, she loves this child and the child won't make it. David continues to pace back and forth. He's crying out, he's yelling, he's screaming for God to do something. And he thinks this is probably the extent of the rippling effects of his sin, but little does he know as the years are going to go on, it's going to get way worse. The pages are going to turn and and his son Amnon is going to do the unthinkable to his half-sister Tamar. And when it comes to light, David doesn't really do anything about it. And then a few years later, his other son, Absalom, actually will, will take out, will actually kill Amnon as a result, creating a civil war vying for David's throne. And, and we don't even have time to get into what Adonijah is going to do as a result of this. He finds himself pacing back and forth. But the thing that sticks in his mind is, is when the prophet Nathan gave him that phrase, David, you're the man. You're the rich man in this story. You're the one who took something from someone else. You're the one who abused your power. Certainly, God will forgive you, but there will be punishment. What do you do when you know you're forgiven, but you don't feel like it? You ever been there before? Like, what do you do when when you know that God has extended you forgiveness and mercy, but you don't feel like it? And people are going to say, how do you find faith after failure? Is that even an option? People are going to tell you it is, but are you going to actually buy it or not? You ever been there before? So here's here's King David, and and he kind of pulls up a chair, and he sits next to his desk, and he lights a candle, and he pulls out a piece of paper, and he begins to write with quill and parchment, trying to capture yet again in poem and in psalm what was on his heart and in his mind. And next to his desk, he's got this trash can with all the failed attempts. And and one of them starts maybe, well, God, you know I didn't mean for it to turn out this way. Nope, that, that doesn't work. Surely, God, after all the good I have done for you, this won't be held against me forever, right? Nope, that doesn't work. Let's try again. I know you're a God of love and grace. Do I even need to be doing this in the first place? So he tries again. And what what David is going to write is going to be personal. Yet hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, it becomes communal for us in the body of Christ. What David is going to write is going to be about his own feelings, but anyone who reads it 
can use it as a mirror for what they are going through and trying to navigate in their own life and failures and grace and mercy and justice of God. What David writes will be about his own journey trying to follow after the living God, but it can serve as life and hope for anyone trying to follow God with their own life. What David is going to write is none other than Psalm 51. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 51. We're going to read it together this morning. You take your Bible, open it in half, you find the peace Psalms. There we go, Psalm 51. It's pretty easy to find. There's 151 of them, so if you find yourself in 1 or 151, you're going to have to take some time. Psalm 51 is a representation. It is David's prayer. It is David's heart after his abuse of power, his sexual uh, uh, exploitation over the woman Bathsheba, and after he's been confronted with this sin. How? How do you move forward after you have failed? How do you resolute a life of faith after there's been immense brokenness? David gives us a clue as how to do that. Psalm 51, I encourage you to follow along with me or listen to the words of this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desire faithfulness. Even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity, he says. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God and Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, or I would bring them. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. To you, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered again on your altar. It's defined as a, as a psalm of confession. And as we, as we read this, as we study it this morning, what we need to know is confession isn't just saying Sorry. Confession is committing to live differently, and a life of confession ought to live to a changed way of living. It's interesting because what we could do is we could take Psalm 51 and lay it over the backdrop of the rest of what we know about David's life, the final 12 chapters of 2 Samuel. And what you would notice and see is there's a lot of good stuff written down here. There's a lot of intentions, yet it's not going to all be followed through. David's going to continue to make mistakes. He's going to continue to go in somewhat of his path. Definitely has a contrite heart, but God's going to be far from his mouth and from his hands, even though in his mind he knows he is in right standing with the Lord. 
offer this as an illustration. Let's, let's say, for example, that there was somebody for years who was just like the worst driver ever. And by the worst driver ever, they thought they were in a Formula One race wherever they went. And all they did is they just sped as fast as they can, pedaled to the metal. They would blow through stop signs and stoplights on several times. They're peeling out around corners, right? And then the, and their tires are off the road on several times, nearly not killing people on several different instances. But they think, I've got it made. I haven't crashed yet. What's the big deal? And then they get into their car and they blow through a stoplight one day. And they take out another vehicle. And as the the driver kind of stumbles out of his car and he looks at the catastrophe that he's just created as a result of this crash, he vows to himself, I'll never do that again. Not only that, I'm going to teach my kids how to drive safely. I'm going to take defensive driving courses. In fact, I'm going to go get certified and be a defensive driving coach. And then three, four weeks go by. He hops behind the seat of a vehicle again and takes off like never before. You see, confession isn't just saying, sorry for the accident. Confession is saying, I'm going to drive differently from this point forward. You know, our teaching team was kind of wrestling with Psalm 51 this week. For those of you who don't know, uh, we, 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 we take our text and we pull it apart and we have a lot of our pastors on staff saying, what do you see here? What do you think we need to teach and whatnot? And we literally had this tense dispute because when I read Psalm 51, what I see is there is a grave understanding of sin that David was like, whoa, this has got to change. And then one of our other softer, more kind, more gentle pastors, so if you ever need to talk to somebody, might I recommend one of them, brings up this idea, but he had to know God was loving in the first place. Like, you wouldn't go to God unless you know he was going to listen, unless his unfailing compassion, his great love was there. So which is this? What kind of God do we, does David writing to in this psalm? And the answer is both of them. A, a God who created what's uh, everything in, in shalom. It's this Hebrew word that means peace, harmony, un, unity. It means human flourishing. This is the way it intended to be. And then there's sin, and sin is serious, and sin breaks shalom. Sin pulls us out of that idea of human flourishing that God has designed you and I to live in. So in one instance, you have a God who's saying, here is shalom, and I want to offer you what I can to get you there. At the same time, too, we have a God who takes sin very seriously. You see, here's the thing, is is you don't need the Bible to tell you that sin ruins lives. You don't need the Bible or to, or to be a Christian or disciple of Jesus for somebody to say, you know what, if somebody makes a string of bad choices, if somebody makes a lot of selfish actions, if somebody does a lot of stuff that ripples and hurts people, they're not going to be flourishing in their life. You don't need the Bible to teach you that. You talk to anybody in life who's got hurts, habits, hangups, who's, who's got snags, who's got, got, got abuse been towards them, or they have been the abuser. You talk to anybody who's got, got, got temptation that they cannot shake. They will tell you, my life is not flourishing the way it should. You don't need scripture to confirm this moral truth that when we are doing wrong, when we're acting the fool, life isn't going to flourish. But what we do need is to answer that question. Can you have faith again after a failure? What, is it, what does it actually look like to mend brokenness in the kingdom of God? Better yet, how do we get shalom back after it's been broken? Human flourishing, is it possible? Psalm 51 says it is. 
but it's going to require something a lot of us don't like. Confession. We don't like confession, do we? Anybody want to raise their hand and say you like to confess stuff here, right? Because we have to admit our faults, our mistakes, how we've hurt people. We have to be vulnerable more than we're often willing. We don't like confession. And you know what else doesn't like confession? It's Satan. Sin doesn't like confession because sin thrives in the darkness. And confession brings it to light. So we're going to talk about what does a life of confession look like, the, the good, the bad, everything in between. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to talk through three cornerstones of life-changing confession this morning. My heart for you, my heart for our church, your elders' heart for you, your staff's heart for you, Josh's heart for the, the people in Urbana, our entire team, everything here, our heart for you is for you to experience flourishing in a human sense with God. And what that means is that you are pursuing God more today than ever before. That is what this idea of human flourishing is. But it oftentimes is going to be taking something that we see and something that we know in this book, and not just saying, I read it, I wrote some notes down, but it's to take it and actually apply it and let it change who we are. So number one, the first part when it comes to life-changing confession is this, is that confession means stating what we've done and what we deserve. Five times in the first few verses, David uses the term transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Twelve times throughout all of Psalm 51, David is painting this picture. And when we read it, we just think, oh, David's using a lot of synonyms here. Sins, transgressions, on and on down the line. But they're all very different. They all have different meanings and connotations and weight. The, the, the term uh, transgressions is a typography term. It means to cross a boundary or a border. So if there, was a, if there was like a boundary of a city, and if you were to cross into it as an act of war, so to speak, that would be what's defined as a transgression, that a line has been drawn and somebody has crossed it. That is what a transgression is. And iniquity is taking something from the way it's intended to be and twisting it or perverting it in a completely different way. The term sin, we've talked about this quite often here, uh, is an archery term, means you miss the mark, you have not hit the bullseye. So what David is essentially doing, he's not just kind of saying the same thing over and over, he is casting a wide net to truly lay out everything that he has done. He's naming his sin without glossing it over. He's saying, saying, God, I've clearly crossed so many lines in my life. David says, Lord, I have twisted and I have perverted my own choices, actions, and other people, and I've caused so much harm as a result of my iniquity. Lord, I have missed the mark of what it means. I've not hit the bullseye of how to live in your kingdom as a man of God, as a leader of your people. But he doesn't just say, I've sinned. He speaks to what he deserves as well. He uses these terms over and over again. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away thoroughly my iniquity. Purge me with hyssop. You know what they didn't have in ancient Israel? Well, there's a lot of things they didn't have, so I guess this I kind of set you up there. They didn't have erasers back then. You ever think about that? No, it's my job to think about that, not your job, okay? So you get a pass on this one. You see, so they would keep a ledger, and everything was written down in ink. They didn't have QuickBooks. They didn't have Excel spreadsheets. There's like three people in today's world who even knows how those work anyway, so it's not like it would have done them any good. 
And so in order for a debt to be canceled or pay off, wouldn't it be to erase it or to change something, crunch the numbers, see what happens? It would mean you have to literally take out a bigger blot of ink and completely get it so there is no hint, there is no trace that that debt ever existed. That per- So when David is saying, blot out my transgressions, Lord, he's saying, make it so that they never existed because David knows and realizes the immense weight that he is facing. The term wash thoroughly, I'm going to talk to this side of the room because you guys got a lot of stuff earlier, so now it's your turn. Anybody own a pig in here? Anybody? Anybody on this side of the room? Uh, Shikes, of course. Yes, okay, we know you guys got pigs, all right? Here's the thing. Pigs are nasty. They're gross. They're stinky. They roll out in the mud. We all know this. And so the term wash thoroughly speaks to, it's actually a metaphor. It's to say, if you were to take a pig to clean it up to be a ritual sacrifice, which you couldn't do, God wouldn't take it, by the way. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's saying, like, I'm going to take something that it lives in the gross, stinky mud and is full of filth, the amount of, uh, of scrubbing to clean that animal back to be pure, which is seemingly impossible. David is saying, that's the amount of work that, God, you need to do in my life. That is how much filth that I have found myself living in. That is the work that you need to do on my soul. There is no excuses. There is no clarity. He just says, I have sinned massively, and what I deserve is even bigger. And he does this by comparing himself to who God is. At one point there in verse 4, he says, against you, only you, I have sinned. Now, we know that that's not actually true because he sinned against Bathsheba in, in, in a mighty way. He sins against Uriah, the, 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 the people of Israel. He, he sinned against his own body. But he's saying, next to God, next to the goal, next to his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness, I am not even close. If you think you have white teeth, do the napkin test. It's been this thing on social media, right? You want to know how, hey, do you think you have, how wide are your teeth? How pearly are they looking? And be like, oh, I think they're pretty good. You know, seven out of 10, maybe. I don't know, around there. And so cool, cool. So, so here's a napkin or here's a, here's a white piece of paper. And then what you do is you hold it next to your mouth and you smile real big. And you have somebody take a picture. Or you look in the mirror and then you begin to realize, oh boy, maybe the dentists are right. Brushing at least once a day is probably something I should do, right? You see, you see, when we take our sin and we compare it to others, we can say, it ain't that bad. In fact, you could probably take your sin, compare it to others, and probably say, definitely not as bad as him or her. But when you take your sin and you compare it to the way it ought to be, the holiness, the righteousness, the purity of God, you're left with one answer and one answer only. Not only I'm way off, I'm probably way off worse than I thought I was to begin with. So the Apostle Paul talks about the gravity and the nature of sin, what it does in our hearts and our lives. It leads us to a debt we cannot pay. It leads to a death that we all deserve. Compared to the holiness, the goodness, the righteousness of God, no one who has ever existed aside from the Son of God, Jesus Christ, deserves anything other than death and damnation. And that's what David's doing. He's naming, he's saying, here's what I've done. My sin deserves punishment, death, damnation, because compared to God, I am so far off track. End of sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> you'd be like, this is the worst sermon ever. And here's the thing. When it, when it, when it comes to this, we, we want to skip this step of confession. 
My guess is a lot of you are right now is like, okay, when's this part going to be done and get onto the happy stuff? Because that's human nature for us to feel like, I don't want to compare myself and, and, and deal with my brokenness any more than I have to. But we, we sometimes want to just skip that all together. We want to jump straight to the love. We want to jump straight to the grace. We want to jump straight to, to the excuses or to the justification. And when we do that, we actually miss out on the power of Jesus we need in our lives. We, we miss out on, on what we actually deserve, and it's going to actually minimize the grace that we need. In some ways, you can put it this way, is we can't have good news unless there's bad news. Like, how do you know that something is bright? Do you compare it to something else that is bright? Or to the, next to the, to the darkness of a shadow? That's what David is doing here. He's saying, next to the purity, the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of God, I have sinned massively. And what I deserve is something that I don't want. It's the bad news, so to speak, of confession, but confession brings good news for you and I and for David. Here's the second point, is that confession declares who God is and celebrates what he's given to us. David calls out for the mercy of God. God, show me your mercy, extend your grace to me, and follow it up right behind it, though, in your unfailing love, in your great compassion, Lord. David knows God has stuff in store and for his goodness of life. And when we take the unfailing love of God and the great compassion of God and you mix them together, we get what is called the chesed uh, nature of God. It is a royal love. It is a loyal love. It is a covenant of mercy, meaning you can't have one without the other. And what it also means is God's love for you, God's love for me, God's love for David, God's love for the world is not contractual. It's not transactional. What that means is God doesn't say, okay, I will love you if you first get your act together. It doesn't say that God will love us and, and extend grace to us as long as we clean up our life along the way. No, it just says, I am committed to you. My love is loyal. I have, I have a covenant of mercy. No matter which way you choose, I desire this relationship if you decide to return. And David knows that about God, for that's who God is. You see, some people like to think of God, or they read maybe the Old Testament, and they think God just seems like a harsh, judgment-oriented, divine being who just wants to spite people for their wrongdoings. That's you guys. Just kidding. This side of the room, the, you know, they do the opposite. And then we're going to have a fight afterwards, see who wins, okay? No. But this side of the room, right, I don't like God because he gives too much grace, too much mercy, too much love and restoration. He's like a hippie. It's just free willing. Everybody gets it. Let's just all have fun and see what happens. So which is it? And the answer is God is both. Takes sin extraordinarily seriously and he is unfathomably full of grace and mercy that we can't comprehend. How is he both? Eric, help me understand. My answer is I don't know. I'm not God. And I certainly can't balance both of those things in perfect fulfillment at the same time. That's why Jesus, though, gives us hints along the way in his life. For example, at one point, he says, you who are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your good heavenly father knows how to give to you what you need. 
See, there's a difference between grace and mercy, and we need both. Mercy is a word that means to bend favor. Grace is a term to receive favor we don't deserve, unmerited favor. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace means receiving what I do not deserve. We need both to walk purely with God. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you came home one evening and there was somebody in your house. They haven't broken anything, they haven't harmed anyone, but you catch them red-handed. To not call 911, to not call the cops, to have them show up, put them in handcuffs and let the justice system do their thing, to not do that would be an act of mercy. To look at the person who's broken into your home and say, I don't know why you're here, but here's five bucks and a loaf of bread, please be on your way, is to extend grace because you're giving that person something they do not deserve. Mercy means you don't call 911. Grace means you give them something to send them on their way. So David, in one sense, he says, I deserve wrath, I deserve punishment, I deserve damnation. God, in your mercy, withhold that from me. And then he turns around and says, God, if you will grant me favor again in your grace, please send it to me. Mercy is what pardons us from the debt of our sin. And grace, though, is the power of Jesus over sin in our life. So in God and his mercy for you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus or you desire to be a follower of Jesus or or how do I become a follower of Jesus, you need both mercy and sin. You need to believe in the mercy of God in which he says, I'm going to take what you deserve, I'm going to take that death and I'm going to give it to my son Christ. But then I'm also going to extend you mercy because I don't want you to just say sorry for what you've done. I want you to live differently. So now my son is going to give you his spirit to empower you to live a new life. Grace versus mercy. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. That's why David cries out, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. He doesn't just say, sorry, give me mercy. He says, I need your grace. I need your spirit. Grant me a steadfast. Allow me to do this, Lord, but only you can do this in my life. If you've ever been to a 12-step program or if you ever go to one, uh, whether it's C-R-A-A, all the other ones in between, you'll notice they all have similar language. And one of the things they all talk about is you need a higher power. You need something stronger and better than yourself to help you live and get on the path you want to be. As Christians, as people in this church, we believe in the one true higher power, and that is Jesus Christ. See, the goal of confession is not to try to control God to get him to bless you again. It's to let God have control of your heart. You ever been in one of those situations before? I have. Where you, you, maybe you, you go to somebody and you say sorry or, or, or maybe you, you pray to God again and it's something along the lines of, hey, I did that thing again, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to, it happened. But what you really mean is, let's just pretend like it didn't exist. I'm just gonna do this to appease you so that you continue to bless my life and let's just go on as if it never happened. That's not confession. That's not what David is saying. The person in the kingdom of God needs to go for a changed life we minimize the amazing glory and power of the grace of God if we minimize what we deserve as a result that's why we're called to celebrate God's grace God's mercy God's power God doesn't want you to say 
here's what you've done. Just sit there and, and, and then think about it. Go sit in the corner. You're on timeout, and then I'll let you out when it's time. He says, no, no, no. You need to know what you've done, but you need to celebrate. You need to sing songs. You need to write poetry. You need to live a life of the grace and the mercy that I've given to you. Confession is never just somber, woe is me, Eeyore's. Confession is also celebrating. Can you believe that God loves me and cares for me so much that I get another opportunity to move forward in his spirit? That's the second thing. Third thing is confession restores relationships and should always include changed living. It's interesting, there's this part in in verse 13. God, if you do all of this in my life, then I will teach transgressors and sinners your way to turn back to you. The hard part is if you take that and you look at the last 12 chapters of 2 Samuel, David doesn't actually really do that from what we know. Does that mean we write it off? Nope, it just means it didn't take heart in his life. See, confession is not just leaving unchanged and going back to our brokenness. Confession means I am committing to living differently. That's why David says, create in me a pure heart. Grant me a steadfast spirit. This word create, it's a sovereign term. God, do something only you can do in my life to give me the ability to continue in your way of holiness. Let me give you an illustration on this, this idea of how we can use brokenness and make it great again. There's this uh, ancient art called kintsugi, and it's uh, usually attributed to Asian cultures, and what, what it is is they take things that are broken, uh, a piece of pottery, some, something that had value, but then when it was broken, it seemingly has no value or, or, or nominal value at that point. And then so what they do is then they take gold. This is gold here, and they melt down gold, and they piece it together. And that's not to say, oh, look, it's kind of back together. It's actually, you take something that was, was. Before this was broken, say it was worth $20. Then, and it breaks, and then you take the time and the energy and the effort through, through this art of redeeming gold, so to speak. That's what the, the, the name means. Kint means golden. Sugi means rejoining. So this golden rejoining now creates something that is immensely more valuable. So if it was a $20 bull, and it gets broken, and it gets rejoined with gold, all of a sudden it's worth $20,000. And that speaks to what God wants to do in your life, in my life, in our lives, through the glory of his goodness. He wants to restore relationships that leads to a new way of living, giving it meaning and purpose like never before. Maybe you've, you've been there before. Maybe you've, you've sat in a courtroom. Maybe you've read a story. And it's one of those moments where, where, where somebody's been hurt and somebody's been broken. What do you want? What is it that you want? Do you want an apology? And they respond by saying something like, well, that's a start. But what I, what I, what I really want, what I really want is for this to not happen again. What I really want is for, for, for nobody else to experience the pain that I have felt. What I, what I really want is, sure, you can apologize, but at the end of the day, what, what, I, what I really need, what I really want, what I really think needs to happen is for this to never happen again. And that's what confession does and plays in our walk with Jesus. Is how do we find faith again after failure? We confess. 
We confess what we've done, we confess what we deserve, but we also confess the goodness of God, the majesty of his love, the glory and the grace of what he wants to do in us and through us. Because of his sin, David had the opportunity to live differently, and we don't know, at least in theory, if he actually did or not. And what the world wants to say is, you messed up. You, you're broken. Manage the pieces as best you can. Either you did the breaking or somebody else did. Sorry, that's just kind of what you have to deal with. There's no getting back to something good and flourishing yet again. Your heart and mind probably wants to tell you something like that too. You're too far gone. You've said sorry too many times. You've messed up too much. Your sin is too great. There's no way you could be loved after that. Your heart and mind wants to try to pull you into this trap to say you are broken and you will only be broken and you will always be broken. But God says, come home. Come back. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care that you've been sleeping with the pigs. I don't care the rippling effects of what you've done. I'm going to take care of that. There will be consequence. There will be, but come back. My love for you, my mercy for you, my grace for you is real. It is sufficient. It is never ending. So how do we find faith after failure? We confess our sin. We confess and celebrate the power of Jesus. And we confess in community, I am going to live different from this point on. The gospel is going to offer you two truths, to, so to speak, to live with. And one truth, the gospel says, that if you so choose is to say you get to be who you are. You get to be what you've done and you get to deserve what you deserve. That's option one that the gospel says. That's an option for every person to live with. But then Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave and says, but now there's a second option. You get to be who I see you to be. You get to love as I have loved you. You don't get what you deserve. You get what the Son of God deserves. You get to choose, it can't be both. I'd venture to guess that a life of confession, while it may be hard, it is necessary for each and every one of us. So here's what we're gonna do uh, for the remainder of our service. We're gonna invite you guys to stand as the rest of the band comes out. And there's gonna be two songs. And we want you to sing these songs out. Not songs of woe is me, but songs of confession, of celebrating the mercy and the goodness of God. Of celebrating how Jesus wants to take what is broken in our lives and mend it back together. So would you stand with us as we continue to worship our Lord and Savior this morning.